Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. I've been a little hesitant to cover this one. As much as I'm into true crime, I'm more of a unsolved disappearance kind of gal in case you guys haven't noticed. Believe it or not, I'm not really an avid serial killer researcher. I think the whole fandom is kind of weird and glamorized. I think that psychologists and law enforcement have learned a lot from these men and women, but it's not really my thing to discuss their crimes. I actually had someone ask me once who my favorite serial Serial killer was. So it's all kind of strange, but I'll do this one and hopefully it's the last one I discuss. I was absolutely crucified over the Lysane Froon and Chris Kremers episode. Apparently, I had the wrong owner of the dog that supposedly accompanied them on the trip. I also said that Chris had asthma when it was actually Lysane who had asthma, even though multiple sources said it was Chris. Those two strikes warranted a slew of angry people in my comments. I understand that I had two minor details wrong, which I felt horrible about, and there wasn't really any way for me to edit them out of the video, so I just took the video down. This is my formal apology. I went on my little sabbatical because I was upset that people were so angry with me over a really minor detail. I can't imagine if I got a minor detail wrong in this one, but I promise you I've done at least 12 hours worth of writing, plus my own knowledge through the years of this guy. Each case is heavily researched, and I try not to miss anything. I'm going to start listing my sources in the description area of the video so people can fact check or whatever. I don't know why I'm so bothered, maybe because I felt my credibility was being questioned. And true crime fans are ruthless, but I still love you all. Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, terrorized portions of California in the 80s. He was a horrible person who did a lot of really bad things. He's right up there with Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, and the others. His trial was like a circus due to the amount of women simping over this guy. Women thought he was attractive. He would get thousands of letters from women claiming he's just misunderstood and he's really a good guy. They feel like they could help him or reform him, which is just unreal. He was lavishing in the attention. This is the case of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. These, these crimes took place beginning in 1984. Let's jump back to that time period as always. This was the first year that the AIDS virus went public. Back then, it was thought that only gay men could get it, which don't even get me started on that. Apple aired that infamous Macintosh Super Bowl commercial. The album Purple Rain was released by Prince. Great album, by the way. The game Tetris was released. The movie Ghostbusters and Footloose were released in, theater in theaters. Marvin Gaye was shot and killed by his own father. And lastly, Alex Trebek began hosting a brand new show called Jeopardy! Ricardo Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29th, 1960. Kind of different that he was born on Leap Day. I don't know a single person born on that day. Richard was the youngest of five children. Now, Richard's mother's name was Mercedes, and while she was pregnant with him, she worked at a boot factory. She was constantly inhaling fumes and toxic chemicals. Some psychologists think that this was the first of many things to happen to Richard, which contributed to his condition, kind of like New England's Patriots uh, Aaron Hernandez using his concussions from football to blame for murdering two people. I don't know enough about the subject to really speak on it, so I'll just stop there. When Richard was two years old, a dresser fell on his head and caused him to have a large laceration. When he was five years old, he was hit in the head by a swing, and that caused some damage as well. He began having epileptic seizures. 
Richard's father, Julian, was pretty abusive to the children. Richard found himself hanging out in cemeteries as a kid. That's one thing I have in common with Richard Ramirez. Not an abusive father. My dad was the complete opposite of that and a wonderful, wonderful man. But I loved hanging out in cemeteries. I used to go and talk to all the graves like they were my friends. I've always felt a connection to the dead. I'm not a medium or anything, but I've always felt something. I also read that his dad used to hang him from a cross in cemeteries and leave him there overnight as a punishment. I couldn't find any credible sources of that, though. He's a troubled kid. He had an older cousin named Miguel, and Richard likes to hang out with Miguel so he can get away from his dad. Richard is only about 12 years old. Well, Miguel is a soldier who had just returned home from the Vietnam War. Miguel liked to show Richard photos he had taken over there where he had raped and dismembered several Vietnamese women. Richard had never seen anything like this, and he was intrigued. Miguel also taught Richard how to attack people stealthily. I don't even know if that's a word, stealthily. But he taught him how to watch and prey on people before attacking. When Richard was 13 years old, he witnessed Miguel fatally shoot his wife. Miguel ended up getting off and only had to spend four years in a mental institution. So Richard is still intrigued by these photos Miguel had shown him. He was obsessed with sex and torture and so on. He gets addicted to drugs and starts having run-ins with the law. Most are just petty crimes. When he was 15, he got a job at the Holiday Inn in town. He was fired because one day he goes into one of the rooms and attacks a woman. He's trying to rape her and her husband comes back, opens the door and sees what's going on. He ultimately beats the shit out of 15-year-old Richard. The couple decided not to press charges because they were from out of town and didn't feel like coming back for a trial and so on. So Richard doesn't face any penalties for the attempted rape of this woman. Richard is now addicted to drugs and claims to be a Satanist. He moved to Los Angeles when he was 22 years old. A young Chinese-American girl who is only nine years old is found murdered in the basement of the hotel where Richard was staying. Her name is Mai Lung. She is found hanging from an a pipe. She had been raped and stabbed repeatedly. It wouldn't be until 2009 until we find out that Richard is her killer. Without going into exactly what happened to this little girl, I'll just say that DNA was found to have matched Richard Ramirez. On June 28, 1984, Richard commits his first of the Night Stalker slayings. He broke into a woman's house named Jenny Vincow. She was 79 years old. She was found dead with her head nearly decapitated. Richard is not caught, although his fingerprint was found on a window screen, but there's no match at this time. On March 17, 1985, this is nine months since the attack on the elderly woman, Richard attacks a young woman who is 22 years old. Her name is Maria Hernandez. Maria pulls into the garage of her condo where she lives with her female friend. She gets out of the car and hears someone slam their hand on the back of the car. She turns around and looks at him and Richard points a gun at her. Her natural reflex is to put her hands in front of her face. Luckily, she still had her keys in her hand. The bullet ricochets off her keys and she survives. Maria is then going to collapse and play dead. Richard enters the house. Maria laid there for a few minutes until she thinks he's gone. She goes outside and then she goes in the front door and there is Richard pointing a gun at her. She begs him not to shoot her. She yells one shot was already enough. For whatever reason, he listened and he left. 
Maria goes in inside and she finds her roommate, 34-year-old Dale Akaza Akazaki, dead. She was shot at point-blank range in the forehead. Maria would later testify at trial that Richard Ramirez was the one who shot her. She really got lucky that she had her keys in her hand and the bullet missed her face. Forty minutes later, Richard heads to Monterey Park. This is in the wee hours of the morning. He finds Sai Yu. She is a 30-year-old art student. She was stopped in her vehicle while traveling. Richard comes up to her car, drags her out, and shoots her on the pavement. This is the second murder within one hour. Richard leaves and gets away. The authorities think that there's some connection between the first and second murder. These are random attacks, not carefully planned out murders. The guy just walks up to someone and kills them. On March 27, 1985, this is 10 days since the two women were killed and Maria was shot. Richard breaks into a house in Whittier, California. He walks into the bedroom where a couple is sleeping. He shoots 64-year-old Charles Zazara in the head while he's asleep. His wife, 44-year-old Maxine, wakes up from the gunshot. Richard starts beating the woman, and then he searches the bedroom for jewelry and other things that he can steal. Maxine grabs a gun and fired at Richard. The problem is that the gun is unloaded. Well, this really pisses Richard off that she tried to shoot him. He shoots her three times, stabs her, and then gouges her eyes out. He takes her eyeballs and puts them in a jewelry box and leaves. When detectives arrive, they find a shoe print in the flower beds, and it matches the same shoe print that was at the house where Dale Okazaki was killed. They also know that the bullets matched the previous attacks, and these shots were being fired from a 22. They now know they have a serial killer on the loose. Residents are urged to lock their doors, lock their windows, keep a gun next to your bed, do whatever you have to do to keep yourself safe. On May 14, 1985, this is about a month and a half later, Richard breaks into Bill and Lillian Doy's house. He shoots Bill in the face with a 22 and then begins beating him. He grabs Lillian, he ties her up, rapes her, and then Bill died at the hospital and Lillian survived the attack. Earlier that day, Bill had placed a down payment on a new car for he and his wife. He was telling neighbors how excited he was about it. He had suffered a heart attack a few years before, and Lillian had a stroke. They were looking forward to the next chapter of their lives. Bill had just retired and was ready to start relaxing. So this seems to be Richard's M.O. He breaks into a house, kills the husband, rapes the wife. If she fights back or pisses him off, he kills her too. Two weeks later, Richard steals a car. He drives to Monrovia, California, middle of the night again. He breaks into the home of two elderly sisters, Mabel and Nettie. Mabel is 83 and Nettie is 81. He beats Nettie with a hammer and chokes her with a cord. Then he ties her up and then he ties Mabel up. He takes Mabel's lipstick and draws a pentagram on her thigh and on the wall behind her bed and then he rapes her. Two days later, the women are found alive, but in a comatose state. Mabel would eventually succumb to her injuries. I've seen the crime scene photos from this one, and they are awful. Some of the worst I've ever seen. The next day, this is 24 hours later, May 30th, 1985, Richard breaks into the home of Carol Kyle. She lives with her 11-year-old son. He ties them both up. He asks her where her valuables are. He rummages through their house, and then he rapes Carol repeatedly. He tells her not to look at him or he'll gouge her eyes out. Then he ties both her and her son together and leaves. 
So, so far, all of the survivor accounts of Richard are the same. He has curly black hair, horrible breath, and his teeth were severely gapped, and there's lots of tooth decay going on. They all said he had extremely evil eyes. He waits about a month until his next kill. He drives the stolen car to Arcadia, California, and on July 2nd, 1985, he breaks into the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon, again in the middle of the night. Mary's husband had died two years earlier, and Mary was a cancer survivor who was learning to get by on her own without her husband. He knocks her out with a lamp, stabs her with a knife that was in her kitchen, and then leaves. It's amazing just how random these victors are, these victims are. Richard didn't have a type. He's killing young women, middle-aged men, elderly women. He's kind of all over the place. I mentioned it earlier, but I'll say it again. These murders are not carefully planned and executed. He walked into Mary's home not knowing who or what he would find. He stabbed her with her own kitchen knife. The next victim would be three days later. He drives the stolen car to Sierra Madre, California. He breaks into a home and finds a 16-year-old girl named Whitney Bennett sleeping in her bedroom. The way that he got in was earlier that day, Whitney opened her bedroom window to yell something to her dad who was outside mowing. She closed the window back, but she forgot to lock it. Richard attacked Whitney with a tire iron. He then grabbed a telephone and tried to strangle her with the cord. As he's doing it, he sees sparks coming out of the telephone and he stops. Something spooked him. He believed that Jesus Christ was trying to save her. He thought this was some kind of divine intervention. He flees the house and Whitney survived. She retrieved. She received treatment for 478 stitches on her head from where he beat her with the tire iron. The police find the same Avia shoe print on her b- bloodied bedroom floor. Years later, in 1993, there was a party to celebrate the lead detective on Richard's case's retirement. Whitney actually met his son at the party, and they exchanged numbers, and they would eventually get married. So two days after this attack, Richard enters Joyce Nelson's home. Joyce was a 61-year-old grandmother who was a sports fanatic. Her granddaughter said that when a ball game was on in her home, everyone was super quiet so grandma could watch the game. Joyce was asleep on her couch, and this murder was brutal. She died because he stomped on her face until she stopped breathing. His footprint, which matched the others, was found on her. He leaves Joyce's home and cruises through two other neighborhoods. He returns back to Joyce's neighborhood and breaks into the home of Sophie Dickman. Sophie is 63 years old. He ties her up and attempts to rape to, attempts to rape her, but he can't seem to do it. Now, Sophie is a psychiatric nurse. She knows exactly how to speak to him and what she needs to do to survive this encounter. She complied with everything he said, and she didn't raise her voice to him. He rummages through her home and makes her swear to Satan that there are no other valuables left in the home besides what he's taking with him. It would be three weeks later, Richard buys a machete. He drives a different stolen car to Glendale, California. He breaks into an elderly couple's home named Leela and Max Needing. He kills them with a machete while they were sleeping and also shoots him shoots them with his twenty two. He mutilated their bodies with the machete, then he goes around the house stealing their things. Max was a pastor at a local church. He never showed up for service, so an alternate pastor was assigned for the day's services. The pastor is speaking to the congregation when one of the ushers passes him a note that stated Pastor Max and his wife were killed by an intruder in their home. 
Richard would murder again the next day. He breaks into the home of a family with an eight-year-old son. They are immigrants from Thailand. I'm going to withhold the name of this family because they have an eight-year-old son in the house who was sexually assaulted by Richard. I'm not going to detail what happened to him since he was a child. He shoots and kills the husband, and then he grabs his wife. He beats her, and he rapes her, and he sodomized her. He drags her around the house, demanding she show him all of the valuables. He demands she swear to Satan that she is not hiding any valuables, and then he leaves. On August 6, 1985, Richard breaks into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. Now, these two are 38 and 27. Remember, Rich is, Richard is doing these attacks randomly. He doesn't know what he's going to find on the other side of that door or window. He goes into their bedroom, and he does something he hadn't done before. He, sh he shoots the woman in the face first. So Virginia is sleeping. She gets shot in the face, and usually he shoots the male first. Then he shoots Chris, and it hits his temple. But he does it in a way that it's not a serious injury. He was able to jump up and run after Richard, who ran out of the home. Richard was scared. He's got this guy he just shot chasing him through the house. Both Chris and Virginia survived their injuries. Two days later, it's August 8, 1985, Richard breaks into Sakina and Elias Abawath's home. He shoots and kills Elias, who is sleeping. He then handcuffs, beats, and rapes Sakina while demanding their jewelry. He ties up their three-year-old son, and then he flees. Ten days later, he breaks into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shoots Peter in the head, then he beats and rapes Barbara demands all the valuables, then he shoots Barbara. He used her lipstick to draw a pentagram and wrote Jack the Knife on the bedroom wall. One thing that baffles the detectives is that Richard is able to finish the killings, rapes, and so on, and then he usually goes into the kitchen and makes a snack. After killing Peter Pan and raping Barbara Pan, he went into the kitchen and ate. Then he masturbated on their living room floor and the evidence was left all over the living room carpet. He also threw up on the kitchen floor. After the killing of Mr. Pan, the evidence of all, this, of all these crimes makes it up to the mayor of San Francisco, whose name is Diane Feinstein. I'm not a big fan of this woman and neither are the detectives and you guys won't be either. So there's evidence from all these crimes that is not released to the public, such as the fact that the same Avia shoe print was found at each crime scene. They also didn't release what caliber of gun he was using. Well, this woman decides she's going to hold a press conference and she tells people to look out for the Night Stalker. And then she starts telling reporters that he wears a size 11 and a half Avia shoe and other details that the, that the detectives did not want released. Richard must have heard it because he takes his Avia shoes and throws them off the Golden State Bridge and into the water. She really jeopardized the investigation and a lot of people are upset with her. She thought she was helping, but she was doing the exact opposite. So Richard steals another vehicle and drives to Mission Viejo, California. He breaks into the home of Bill Carnes and Carol Smith. This is a couple in their 20s. Richard walks into the bedroom and shoots Bill three times in the head. He tied Carol up. He beat, raped, and sodomized her. He told her to tell the police the Night Stalker was here after he leaves. So at this point, we know Richard is well aware of his new name, the Night Stalker. He steals valuables and flees in a car. Bill had surgery and two bullets were removed from his head and he survived the shooting. 
He attempts to break into another house. Well, the family's 13-year-old son hears someone outside. He wakes his parents up and turns the, the lights on, and Richard gets scared. So he gets in the car and leaves. The family catches the make and model and part of the license plate number of the car, which they gave to police. Richard knows the authorities are looking for this orange Toyota, so he ditches the car. Police find the car, and they were able to get a fingerprint off the rearview mirror. It comes back as a match to Richard Ramirez. They run his name through the system and discovered he had a long record that stated he was a 25-year-old drifter from Texas. It had a lot of arrests for Richard that involved illegal drugs and, tra and traffic violations. Richard's mug mugshot was released to the public then. The Night Stalker now has a true identity and a face to go with his name. The police announce, we know who you are now and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide. Richard's old mugshot was plastered on the front page of every newspaper in the U.S. Do you guys remember me telling you about how each survivor described Richard as having horrible teeth? They're decayed, they're spaced out, they're rotting, and so on. Well, Richard was spotted driving in a stolen car, and police try to pull him over and he takes off. They find the stolen car eventually, and inside they find a business card from a dentist in Chinatown from an appointment that Richard had had earlier. The detectives go pay this dentist a visit, and the dentist tells him that he had a patient earlier named Richard Mina. The detectives ask for his dental x-rays. One of them takes them to a friend who is a dentist. He looks at the x-rays and says, this guy won't be away from the dentist long. If you look, you can see he has an impacted tooth. I guarantee you, within days, he's going to go back to the dentist to have it pulled. He's going to be in excruciating pain. So the detectives get two of their Asian officers to go undercover. They're going to wear plain street clothes and wait in this dentist office in Chinatown like they're waiting on an appointment. When Richard shows up, they will apprehend him. Their boss told them this plan isn't going to work. It's too expensive, and he's not even guaranteed to show up. Find another way. So they have this silent panic button installed in the dentist's office. If Richard shows up, the dentist would just push the silent alarm button, and that would alert the detectives, and they would be right there to get him. The day after the, the alarm was installed, they wait around, and nothing happened. Later that evening, one of the detectives gets a call from the dentist. He says... Why didn't you come? He was here. The button had malfunctioned. They missed their opportunity, and everyone is incredibly frustrated. Richard knows everyone knows his face now. He's getting sloppy. On August 30th, 1985, he takes a bus to visit his brother in Arizona so he can get out of California. He doesn't end up meeting his brother, and he comes back to Los Angeles. Richard gets off the bus and goes to a convenience store where he sees his picture and he panics. He then hears some older Mexican women yelling at him, El Matador, El Matador, which means the killer. He flees really quickly. So he tries to steal a woman's car after running across the Santa Ana freeway, but was chased away by people nearby. He started to run again while jumping over fences and tries to steal two more cars, but he failed. 
Some residents ran after him until one until one of them caught up to him and hit him across the head with a metal bar. They joined together and they beat him down. The police arrived shortly after and took him into custody. The night stalker was finally caught. As a side note, I cannot fathom being one of the citizens that caught Richard Ramirez and had the opportunity to beat the shit out of him until the police arrived. Kudos to that group of folks for being vigilant and also to the two elderly Mexican women who yelled El Matador at him. The two detectives who were in charge of the whole investigation are Gil Carrillo and Frank Salerno. Frank Salerno, Frank Salerno is a seasoned detective. This guy is really good. He was the one who apprehended the Hillside Strangler. Frank Salerno knows how to get Richard to talk. He tells him he's going to put him in the same cell that the Hillside Strangler was held in when he was caught. Well, Richard gets really excited about this celebrity status, and he's embracing this serial killer persona. Richard makes his first court appearance, and that's where that famous shot of him holding up his hand with a pentagram on it comes from. He looks at the camera and says, Hail Satan. Jury selection was beginning, and some jail employees claim they overheard Richard saying he was going to have a gun smuggled into the courthouse and he was going to shoot the prosecutor. Even though most people know that Richard worked alone and didn't have any help from anyone or any real friends and family, they had to take the threat seriously. A metal detector was installed in the courthouse, and each person entering was thoroughly searched. That's completely normal these days, and it has been for a long time. The trial ends up getting interrupted. So one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, didn't show up for court. The police go to her house and find that she had been shot and killed. The other jurors are freaking out because they don't know if this was a hit directed by Richard while he was in prison, and now they're worried about their own safety. It was determined that her death had nothing to do with Richard Ramirez. Phyllis was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who then turned the gun on himself. Richard's trial was a media circus. He would show up for court in black sunglasses, his prison uniform, and shackles. He knew women liked how he looked, and he used that to seem mysterious. He would rock his chair back. He would laugh at times. He almost seemed like a class clown who sat in the back instead of a serial killer facing execution. I watched a lot of this footage of him in court, and it's just absurd. <laughs> he lavished in the attention. He was even called the Death Row Romeo. Even one of Richard's victims, who survived, described him to the court as a very handsome man. A detective attending the trial noted there was a female attorney who, who, who was there, and she was very attractive. She was very professional and always doing her job really well. Once when Richard walked by on shackles, she opened her legs up and blew him a kiss. There were also dozens of women who would pack the courtroom just to get a glimpse of him. Madonna is even on record describing how handsome he is. Like, do y'all realize what this man has done? On September 20th, 1989, Richard was convicted on all charges. 13 counts of murder, 5 accounts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. All of the counts of sexual assaults against children were dropped so the children didn't have to testify. He already had 13 counts of murder and a slew of other charges, so you can't really add any extra sentencing to that. The good news is that California has the death penalty in their state. On November 7, 1989, Richard was sentenced to die in the gas chamber. 
Richard is let out in handcuffs to head back to the prison, and he told reporters, big deal, death always went with the territory, see you in Disneyland. His trial cost taxpayers $1.8 million. That was the most expensive trial ever in California history until the O.J. Simpson trial in 1994. Richard got a lot of letters from females while he was awaiting trial and after he was convicted. I'm talking thousands. He also got his teeth replaced in jail. So if you see any newer photos of him, you'll see that he has perfect teeth. I'm appalled that the taxpayers had to foot the bill for that, by the way. There was a lady, a lady who wrote him 75 letters, and she visited him in prison a lot. She was, like, obsessed with him. Her name is Doreen Leoy. In 1988, Richard proposed to her. They were married in San Quentin Prison in 1996. They had a ceremony and were allowed one kiss, no conjugal visits or anything like that. It was a quick 15-minute ceremony with him, her, a priest, and lots of correctional officers who were there, not because they wanted to see Richard Ramirez get married, but because of security. Doreen's family disowned her due to her relationship with Richard. Richard is going to be on death row for a long time. You guys know how it goes. There's appeals and so on. Doreen always stated that when it was time for Richard to be executed, she was going to commit suicide. Well, in 2009, DNA confirms that Richard was the rapist and killer of that little nine-year-old Chinese-American girl from the beginning of this story. Doreen is super bothered by this. She says this is where she draws the line and she divorces Richard. Richard gets engaged to a woman named Christine Lee. She was one of the ones who wrote him letters all the time. I've read so many different stories about her age. Some say she was 23 years old. Others claim she was in her 30s. I have honestly no idea what her real age is. In 2013, Richard is still on death row. He becomes ill from B-cell lymphoma, which is an aggressive form of cancer. He also had hepatitis C. Inmates describe him as turning green, like a green highlighter marker from the jaundice. He is transferred with heavy security to Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California, where he passed away. He was 53 years old. No one wants to claim his body, none of the women, none of his family. Richard is cremated, and I can't find anything about who claimed his ashes, so they were likely buried by the funeral home. Richard was described by psychiatrist Michael Stone as being a made psychopath as opposed to being a born psychopath. Basically, he could have been a normal person. I really hope that you guys can check out the Netflix documentary about Richard. There's interviews with detectives and some of the surviving victims. It was super informative. That's all for now. Rest in peace to every victim of the Night Stalker who wasn't able to survive their attack. Take care and much love to you all.